You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. So good morning. Good morning, First Universalist Church. It is so good to be together this morning in all the ways that we can. Here at First Universalist Church, we believe in the transformative power of love and hope, of giving, receiving, and growing together. We are a faith community that listens deeply to where love is calling us next, We welcome, affirm, and protect the light in each human heart. We act for justice with humility, courage, and compassion, and we do all of this as a faith community that is committed to ending oppression in all its forms and building the beloved community of liberation, joy, and belonging for all of us. There are lots of ways to get connected here. You can check out our virtual order of service. There should be a link to that in the chat uh, right there. Um, So you can check out our virtual order of service. You can uh, also find that um, on our website. Just uh, click on the link for this service and the order of service is right there on that page. Um, You can sign up to receive our weekly, weekly newsletter to learn more. You can join us Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. for worship, uh, short midweek worship, and you can join us next Sunday for worship as well. Friends, a word on where we are as a church in the midst of the pandemic. You might notice that we are gathering at a different time than in weeks past and that we are 100% online instead of online and in person. While the rates of COVID infections are higher, we have paused our in-person worship. We paused it for this Sunday and by midweek, we will determine what next Sunday will look like. And we will let you know by email and on our website. If we do, when we reopen, if and when we reopen for in-person worship, please know that you can always join us online. And we hope that you join us in the way that is right for you. And so as we gather and prepare to worship together, we remember that the land we live on here in Minneapolis, here in the Twin Cities holds the stories of generations, stories of suffering and resilience, the pain of genocide and stolen land and stolen lives. We commit to learning and telling the multiple stories of this land and our shared history and to creating a present and a future of love and justice for all. And so as we make our hearts and minds ready for this time of worship, I invite you into our practice of three intentional breaths, breathing all the way in and all the way out at your speed as we move into this time of worship. There is a moment before dawn when the night is firmly in charge of the sky. 
There is no arguing with the opacity that holds both a fertile imagination and cover of destruction. Just hold on. There is the moment when the dream we share is newly born, wet and wriggling in our hands. Sometimes it's true that salvific futures look vulnerable and small before us. We remain unsure. Just hold on. Anything good was small at first. You know that Dr. King said, I have a dream. It definitely was not the I have a reality speech. It was real in a different way that could be felt, that could be shared. They held on. That dreaming speech happened in August, 1963. And you know what came before was April, a letter from a Birmingham jail. One moment did inform the other, but the future being built could not be known with certitude. They held on. We gather Unitarian Universalists certain only of our power to be human, finding ourselves committed to keeping our word and being our covenant. And when we fail to keep our promises, we don't throw them away, labeled as impossible. We take up our courage. We begin again. We hold on. Sprinkled in the wind, we can hear the question, if we are not white supremacy shaped into religious robes and rituals, then who are we? We are present, both in attention and in the answer. We are here. We hold on. We contain multitudes, not just of questions and contradictions, but also of possibilities. We continue to labor for the creation of community in which all of us, not just each, but every part of us, is welcome in our home of faith. We hold on. Let us worship together. Please join me in saying the words for lighting our chalice. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. For our time for our ages, beloveds, I'm going to invite Ashley and Arif back on screen. But really, I want to have a conversation with you in the chat. Arif and Ashley are here as my backup support people in case no one says anything, but that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. You're going <laughs> to, right? Right? Okay. And what we're going to do during this time for all ages is we're going to talk about what we remember learning about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and how and when we learned it. And I would love to speak with the youth and the children in our congregation. So if you are online today, worshiping with your family, get one of your parents or get yourself to the keyboard because I want to hear what it is that you remember learning about Dr. King and when you learned it. What, what do you, what, where, where did the story of Dr. King first come to you? And I would especially love to hear from our black indigenous and multiracial youth and children and families. I would expect, this is called a progressive stack when you center the voices 
of people who have a particular lived experience and you let them go first in a conversation, that's a progressive stack. And I would like to progressively stack our conversation. So in, your, in the chat, if, especially if you are a person of color, a youth of color, I would love to hear, what did you learn about the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And, and how and where? And in the meantime, I'm gonna ask you, Arif, what, was, what's, what do you remember learning? Um, that is a great question. I was just thinking about that. And I was like, huh, what did I learn? You know, I grew up in a family, um, a long, long line of um, organizers and activists uh, in India. So I think I actually learned about, um, you know, Gandhi and um, the, you know, the Brahmo, uh, Brahma Samaj and other um, movements for justice in, in, in India um, long before I had learned anything about Dr. King. Um, I think that my earliest uh, lessons uh, were in school and they were, um, uh, you know, they were, they were initially centered around the um, I have a dream speech, um, which was then uh, complexified by family members um, and, and much, much later my own you know, my own research, my own, my own learning. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. I see that Ali is also echoing that in the chat, the character of a person and not their race, one of the central messages from that I have a dream yeah. um, speech. Absolutely. How about you, Ashley? Yeah, I, um, I had a fairly exceptional experience learning about MLK for a white kid growing up in America. Um, I, I went to JJ Hill, which then became Capitol Hill over in St. Paul um, growing up and um, started my school career with a strong, powerful black woman principal, um, Dolores Henderson, who um, some of you may be familiar with if you've lived here in the Twin Cities a long time. And her leadership marked the character of the whole school in a way that I I still can't quite tease out, but it was extremely formative for me. So, you know, I grew up with like, um, we sang, lift every voice and sing every, you know, I knew all of those words at like eight years old. Right. right. And we would have a um, black history month assemblies, including one of those gatherings, right. About Dr. King and we, you know, folks would, uh, you know, read or represent like various other characters from that era. Um, and, you know, but, but there was like an Ella Baker and a, and a King and a Bayard Rustin and, a, you know, and mm -hmm. I feel like I got a much more sort of robust and nuanced version of that. Um, and I still continue to learn things because even with that sort of expanded version, um, the popular culture has this like very flat, very like two-dimensional version of the civil rights movement with King at the front. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Usually look at or maybe the chat. Yeah, um, I see in the chat uh, that there is a lot of arresting folks for um, blacks' rights to be allowed into restaurants and stores. Yeah, there was there that was the hard work of the civil rights movement was to actually push the envelope and say, no, we're actually going to do this, even though we're not supposed to. Um, I, I, I remember very vividly in the movie, The Butler, watching the young people prepare for those actions mm -hmm. and the interactions that they had with each other in advance so that they could really strengthen themselves and sit through the abuse that they put up with. Very, very powerful. 
Um, I did not, I don't remember how I learned about Dr. King. I, um, I grew up in Mexico and I have always known about Dr. King. I don't know why. I don't, I don't know when or how. One thing that I do recognize, speaking of the flat, like just one dimensional, is that when I, when I first learned about the civil rights movement, I learned that Dr. King was good and Malcolm X was bad. Yeah. That there was a good way to do change and a bad way to do change. And um, I think that's very interesting too. I think that there's, there's a lot there to unpack about how we have over time told a history, a story about Dr. King that in fact, at the time, I don't think he was considered the good one. <laughs> and I don't think, you know, I think it was very, very complicated. And that story is used all the time now to say, well, Black Lives Matter should be acting more like that nice, That's that right. nice civil rights movement, which never actually existed, but that story is used to talk about the kind of respectability of what a movement should look like. Right, because the nonviolent approach was only from one side. It it was not a nonviolent march. It was it, it wasn't the 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 journey of nonviolence was putting up with all of the violence coming at black people. So yeah, absolutely. Um, I see in the in the chat, yes, a couple of people agree and they learned that MLK was more of a hero than Malcolm X. Um, Lisa's father marched with Dr. King in 63. That's pretty powerful. Cool. Yeah. Anything else? What else do you notice from the, the chat? I think that's it. So thank you for participating in the conversation. Um, oh yes, you're right, Dallas. MLK was all about race, but really he talked a lot about poverty, especially at the end. He was really, really pushing for a, a complex and intersectional understanding of oppression. Absolutely. And militarization, those three pillars are what he talked about. That's right. Money, race, violence. Yep. Yep. Well, I thank you all for participating in this first part of our conversation. Later on, you'll have another opportunity to participate in the chat. And, oh, yep, the Vietnam War, exactly. Oh, and the truth about how Rosa Parks was really well planned. It wasn't a sudden thing. Yeah, that's right. There's, there's, it's a much more complicated story than we have been led to believe. That is absolutely right. So let us take advantage of the fact that we are back in our living rooms and that we can sing and we don't have to wear masks and let us join in singing We Are with Amy and Franco. See? 
Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Franco. Thank you, Julika and Ashley and everyone who joined in in the chat for that, for that time for all ages. Friends, as we come into this time of prayer, this time of centering, I invite you to put down what you might be holding physically or mentally. Push back from the computer if you want. There's not really much to see on the screen for this, at least not right now. Just give yourself a little space. This week, a colleague shared a question with me that's been on my mind ever since. They asked, are you where your feet are now? My answer in that moment and in the many moments since was a clear and resounding no. This week, these last weeks really, have had my mind so very busy again. Omicron, 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 and all the many permutations and combinations that result from that mantra, carrying my mind and my heart and my attention far, far from where my feet, far from where my body was, and into the realm of worry and anxiety, into the future, into the past, anywhere but here. Perhaps you've had similar experiences. So friends, each week when we gather for worship, we make this little oasis that we call our time of prayer and the cycle of life to create that clearing in our lives in which we can bring our hearts and our minds and our attention into the same place our bodies are, into this moment, the only moment we can ever actually be in. So let's bring our attention here. Now, to this moment, look around the space that you're in, if that helps. Situate your body in time and geography. Rest your hands in your lap, if that feels comfortable. Notice what you notice about sensation in your body, the feel of the chair or the couch beneath you. the feel of fabric on your skin, cool air on your hands, the sensation of breath at your nostrils or the rise and fall of your chest. Let's rest in this moment as we allow the prayer of our hearts to well up in us. Spirit of life, spirit of love, interconnected web of mutuality that binds us one to another and to this planet. In times of challenge and doubt, may we remember that we are held always by a love larger than us, by forces vaster and more powerful more subtle that we, than we can imagine in this dance of giving and receiving and growing with the many beings seen and unseen that make up our world. 
May we remember that to even be alive in this moment is a, a miracle, that to have the health and the strength to be present this day is not a given. May our prayer start in gratitude for this moment and ripple out. And as these gratitudes soften our hearts, let our compassion be kindled. Compassion for ourselves, compassion for those around us, compassion for the wider world. And resting in this compassion, I invite you to share out loud and in the chat those things you would like to lift up in worship today, those things you would like held in the care of this congregation. And friends, as we draw our time of prayer to a close, let us remember that there is, in the words of Reverend John Cummins, but one place where time and death have no dominion, and that place is love. We pray that the grip of addiction be loosened, that the weight of oppression be lightened, that truth be told, that joy break through, and that love make every suffering bearable for us all. May it be so. Amen. And will you join me in singing Spirit of Life with Dave and Ani Peichel? think you're still muted I can't hear you there it is thank you you know you'd think it's a good segue <laughs> because what I was just about to say was we are in a moment that we feel like we have been in before <laughs> it's the same old thing we are doing it again you would think we would know better you would think that maybe some things would have changed and yet here we are and Julika and I, as we were preparing for this service, we talked about, okay, what is, what is the sermon that is needed? And what we said is, my God, we do not need the same thing again. We do not need to repeat all of the things. And, you know, I'd gone through my, my files and all the MLK services that I'd preached. And I was like, oh, I just feel so tired of this. And um, not only was I tired of that message, but also, you know, we had everybody in my house, including our, our toddler had COVID this week. Um, so many people are holding those things. Um, I work at the UUA and we are launching 30 days of love today. And so it was, you know, what we said was 
what actually feels truer to the spirit of this day of MLK Day when um, the king, the call from Bernice King is we got to do something different. We need to get voting rights legislation passed. We need to do things that we haven't done because it's not working. We said, all right, we're going to do something different. And so we um, today have decided to share with you a, a live conversation that Julika and I had on Friday together. And it's about 12 minutes long. It's some, some thoughts that we had. And what we are going to ask you to do is to pay attention to your questions and your insights during those 12 minutes. And when we're done, we're going to have a chance in the chat for you to share those questions. Um, we were going to respond in real time to those. And uh, we will also have some questions for you. And so with no further ado, we give you 12 minutes of Julika and Ashley from Friday doing things differently than we have done. Good morning, Ashley. Thank you for being here. Good morning, sweet friend. I'm so glad to be here with you. It's so good that we are having this opportunity to use Zoom to our advantage since we had to take a break from in-person worship one more time. Here we are. And um, we're going to have a conversation. We're going to have a conversation, you and I first, and then we're going to open it up through questions through the chat for other people to participate, which I think is excellent. I'm looking forward to it. Me too. And um, our topic is what we have learned, what we have been taught by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. But before we go into that part of our conversation, let's acknowledge that this is not a historical abstract learning exercise. No, no. no. <laughs> yeah, we are in a moment. Uh... You know, I think everybody listening today probably knows the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act of 1964, what, five, six, seven years ago now, eight years ago. Yep. Um, and since then, various, um, you know, coalitions of people have been really pushing to get some of those protections back in the past couple of years in particular, we've seen just like the incredible um, and deeply racist, yeah, right, let's name that explicitly, the deeply racist um, disenfranchisement of thousands and millions of people. Um, and right now, uh, we are in a moment where the, the push has been around, um, you know, a number of voting rights bills that have sort of come together under the, the, there's been the John Lewis Act, the For the People Act, the, you know, People's Response, all of these things. But um, the, the push right now is to get the Senate to pass it, and the block is the filibuster. And so um, I believe as we're recording this on a Friday last night on Thursday, um, you know, Senator Sinema and Manchin said that they were not going to go after the filibuster. Um, and so folks are gonna descend uh, this week on this weekend and on King Day on, um, on both of their offices and on the Capitol. Um, we gotta make it happen. This is not abstract anymore. And we are fighting literally for the same things that folks lived and died for um, in the 50s and 60s when uh, Dr. King was leading and so many others. That's right, that's right. We are continuing the work. We. I think we need to renew our own internal sense of how and why and lean in. This is a time for all of us to lean in. That's right. That's yeah. right. And lean in together and do it maybe differently in some ways than, than our uh, 
elders did in the 50s and 60s and 70s in the civil rights movement. And I think that's that's part of what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, say more. What what is it that you take as one of the core learnings from the civil rights movement and from Dr. King's work? Well, first, I think I want to name, you know, there's so much to talk about um, with Dr. King and so many things that we could go into. But one of the things that has become so clear to me, both in my love and my frustrations with him, are that he was an incredibly savvy leader who could read the political moment, right? And so um, when I think about the way that he and those around him shaped um, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and, and these other organizations that they were working in, you know, they were very intentional about seeing the political landscape and saying, we need a charismatic leader out in front. We need um, a very, you know, a very respectable in terms of, uh, you know, what is considered, you know, popularly respectable for, for a Black leader in particular. And there were choices made. Right, you know, I think about how Bayard Rustin was pushed out for being gay, even though he was the he was the mind behind so much of this. I think about how leaders like Ella Baker, um, who had a very different philosophy uh, of organizing, that um, you know had very different politics in many ways, but um, you know was pushing for a a much more leaderful moment movement and. Um, say what you will about King, but he knew that the for to sort of address the white moderate, right, who he writes about um, so eloquently, there needed to be a particular face of it. And he was that. Um, I think also, though, that was that was a particular moment in history, right? And part of what we have um, been gifted by the last 10 to 15 years of movement history is a different kind of movement for justice where folks are no longer willing to just say we're going to hold up one person in part because that person is so vulnerable we saw with king's assassination with the assassination of others in those political moments that when you have a figurehead like that the movement can crumble um and so black lives matter the water protectors have all refused to do that they have said no we're going to be leader full and care full movements, right? We are going to take care of each other in different ways. Um, and I think, you know, we have in fact made some progress nationally in terms of our, um, our, our understandings of race. I think we're at a critical moment where actually we are backsliding right now. And I, I know that you and I often will talk in terms of the IDI, the Intercultural Development Inventory. And I, I, I wanna hear what you have to say about kind of the moment we're in and the difference between what what King and the and the civil rights folks were in at that time. Yeah, thank you. I think um, you're right. This is the thing that I feel very passionate about because the way that we can see that we have advanced and that that things have happened is because of the power of the message that Dr. King gave us with his many different metaphors and images, but especially that one of my children, your children holding hands, the, the content of their character, right? Like he was creating in, in the intercultural development inventory language, he was helping us move from polarization to minimization, which is the shift from we're very different and we could never possibly share a counter 
a, a bathroom, whatever, to we're exactly the same. Minimization is a minimizing of differences. And that is what we needed in the 60s because we were in segregation, because Black people were not allowed. Blah, 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 blah. We, we have the whole list. Now, when you listen to Dr. King's speeches and the accusations that he's leveling at the system, they're still alive today. Like he could be talking about the police right now. So it's not that things have been solved, that systems have changed. It's not that Black and other people of color are actually living a liberated and joyful life. I mean, we are. Many of us people of color are living a much more liberated and joyful life than we did before, but that's there's still so much more to reach for. And it's also true that culturally there was a shift to understanding that we are the same. That is one of the biggest gifts of the civil rights movement, that we can hold hands, that we are at our core all human. And that is both a gift and a limitation. Like, if we continue to stay in this place of we're all the same, we are all, there's no difference between us, then we're not able to fully acknowledge the role of power, the role of systems, the role in which all of, all of these different parts of our lives are impacting the way that we experience society. So mm -hmm. it's time to move beyond this space of we are all the same not because it's not true but because it's more complex mm -hmm. what do you think yeah i mean i for me it's we moved from a place where it was uh fine to question the humanity of entire swaths of people because of as dr king said the color of their skin right so we moved from that to okay yes we are all human and you're right staying in that place means then that we don't actually deal with the fact that differences do make a difference right um and i think you know th that goes not not just for race in this country but for sexual orientation for gender for all kinds of different constellations of identity that i think that shift culturally helped us make in other arenas right of, of who we count as human that's right um i kind of look at this political moment though right when um you know just a year after an attempted coup uh on the government a um you know and and often the the response to that right response to the hatred to the to the deep racism and the deep bigotry that has fueled the radical right for um forever right this is not new this is not a new upsurging but there has there was a crack that has happened over the past number of years that allowed those dehumanizing views to come back through again and have um, purchase in popular culture without the shame that came from them following the civil rights movement. That's right. right? People knew that it was not okay to say that out loud. And so these little clusters of people kind of um, festered and grew. And um, I, I will not say that everywhere in the country that racism just kind of like went dormant underground or anything, but, but in, in, general public discourse right and so i think we're at this moment where there is this there's this resurgence of like 
yeah, it's okay to, um, you know, the debates over critical race theory. It's okay to pretend that race doesn't exist. And it's okay to, um, to say that we're not going to have any conversation at all about this. And, you know, you look at these, the hate groups that are multiplying the, the, the hate crimes that are being con committed, the, the way that folks are, um, you know, engaging in everything from like gerrymandering to electing school boards. Right. Um, and I think my fear is that, you know, that backside is going to further re-entrench this kind of, you know, lottie lottie unity message of minimization and that we're not going to be able to push forward with some of the more nuanced conversation that is so deeply needed that's and that right. our movements have been pointing to for the last number of years. That's right. That's right. So. I think it would be good for us to stop this recording so that we can then invite folks to join this conversation live on Sunday morning and so that we can say, so now what? So what So what does this mean? If this is where we are, if this is where we've been, what does this moment call us to do? Mm -hmm. Does that sound good? That sounds great. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. We had some interesting things to say on Friday, didn't we, Julia? We did, and we said it all in one take. I'm very impressed. <laughs> um, and I see that folks have already started engaging in the chat. Thank you. Good. Yes. Um, I think that before we engage more deeply in the actual questions that you bring into this conversation, we're going to invite you to notice how are you feeling? That's the first thing to notice. How does this conversation about Dr. King and about where we are, where we've been, where we need to go, how does that make you feel? We would love to see in the chat if you're willing to share. I feel stimulated and curious and frustrated. Like I feel a lot of different feelings of like, ah, and wanting to have things happen agitated, discouraged, frustrated with white people, hopeless. Yeah, that's real. Anger, unsure. Yeah, how do we rise? Curious, anxious because I don't understand what to do differently. Thank you, Cindy, yeah, that's real. Mm -hmm. How are you feeling, Ashley? I think there's some weary in there, um, tired of the iterative cycle, we do the same thing. But also, um, so much of my work is about being with folks who are trying to, to learn what is harvestable and to do new things with it. And so, you know, joy and woe are woven fine. And I think there's always that, that tension, that balance for me. And I, when I, where I feel that is in my belly. I feel sort of like, the like rumbling of wanting to move, wanting to, to, to act. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. All of you who are sharing, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think, um, I would be so interested to see where, 
how this would change um, if we were living in an alternate universe in which the pandemic weren't happening, mm. right? Because there's, um, I think one of the things that the pandemic has has done is to show us that, you know, so many of us would get up and go to the protest or um, show up for the meeting or, you know, when something would happen, when, when something would be revealed, we would, we would have these kind of staple ways of getting that energy out. And I think because those are so largely unavailable to us right now, it's both extraordinarily disheartening because we don't have a channel for that. But I think it's also showing that those, those tactics were more about our feelings in some ways than they were about actually creating change in this time, in this moment. Um, you know, the, the marches of the 60s were incredibly effective. And I think what we've shown is that some of those same tactics don't work in the same way now that they did. And so we're having to get creative and it's fascinating to watch what folks come up with. Yes. And the pandemic is also pushing us to break things that we thought we're not, we're going to break a long time from now, if at all, like they already broke. So many things are already different and pushing us. And if we can tolerate this level of uncertainty and continue to stay in it together and continue to find creative ways to feel together while we are feeling so tired, so separate, here we are worshiping online again. Like what, where can we gather and center energetically and understand that this is part of a larger journey that is going to that is already preparing us and that is going to give us so much more capacity than we had before. I am, I, I do lean towards optimism. I mean, I, I have to, like, that's just how I am. If I, if I ever lose my optimism, I will leave this ministry. I will leave this job. Like I cannot do this work if I don't believe that something good can happen from it. But, but it's not by ignoring the tired or the, I don't want to, or the, oh my God, please not again. It's, there's an alchemy that we need to sort of pivot and, and, and lean into. Yeah. And I think, Julika, I think it's important to acknowledge, you know, the famous quote that is often attributed to King is the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. That's a, he was quoting Theodore Parker, a Unitarian yep. minister from the 1800s who was an abolitionist. Um, and who's, you know, that, that theological optimism is actually a deep part of our religious tradition as Unitarian Universalists, sometimes to our detriment, right? We've been overly rosy or optimistic, but I think what you're talking about is how, how do we face what is real while not losing hope? Um, and I, you know, I, I know so many of you in this congregation because of my relationship just here locally and, and through my partner, Karen Hutt, who's also one of your ministers, but um, I serve as the organizing strategy director at the Unitarian Universalist Association. We didn't really do an intro. Sorry about that, everybody. Um, <laughs> uh, but my day job is I run Side with Love and the outward facing justice ministries of our association um, with an incredible team of people who are just so brilliant and so skilled. And over the last two and a half years that I've been in that role, we have been, you know, pivoting and adapting as, as things have changed. Um, but also we've been building what in my mind some days is the machinery of hope that gets me through. Yes. Um, I think 
you know, my, as I was growing up and as, as uh, previously in our iteration as Unitarian Universalists, I think we, we did a lot of sort of what we called public witness, where folks would go out into the world and, you know, wear our t-shirts, share our values. Um, but we never got really serious about investing in the infrastructure to help us do something more effective, to mm -hmm. really bring us into community and connection, not just in a individual congregation, but across Unitarian Universalism. And um, as we have been building and organizing infrastructure, right, of training leaders, creating opportunities for folks to take action locally and nationally, we use what we call a distributed campaign model. Um, it is the thing that is keeping us, um, the folks on my team, going. Because you know, when when there is a coup, or when there an attempted coup, when there is the gerrymandering that we're seeing, when there is another killing of somebody by the police, when you know all of these things, we are no longer in a place where we are hand wringing, because there is always something we can do. And when we see hundreds or thousands of people across the country show up for a phone bank or organize an action in their local community while other people are doing the same thing at the same time. That to me is what keeps me going and gives me hope that it is the machinery of hope for me. Um, and I think that to me is that that's the other end of the pendulum, right? So like there's this team of folks where what we're doing is not trying to all get in line behind a single leader or a single theory, but what we're trying to do is equip hundreds of leaders in hundreds of places to, to, to do what makes sense in their local context while also feeding their spirits, rooting in our tradition that will carry us through, you know, working to play well with others in partnership out in the world. Um, and, you know, that's my, that's my little, my soapbox here. We probably need to start wrapping up here Wait. about things but we I want to let you respond to that Julika. No and, and I appreciate uh, thank you all who are um, responding in the chat in real time. Um, I, I feel hope as I hear you talk as do others in the congregation Ashley. Thank you. Um, it has to go beyond the hand wringing. It has to go into the next piece and I know that you have a suggestion for us an immediate call to action. Before I invite you to do that I want to read something from Arundhati Roy that I think really speaks to this moment. And we've shared it in worship before, but good things bear repeating. She says, our strategy should be not only to confront empire, but to lay siege to it, to deprive it of oxygen, to shame it, to muck it with our art, our music, our literature, our stubbornness, our joy, our brilliance, our sheer relentlessness, and our ability to tell our own stories. Stories that are different from the ones we're being brainwashed to believe. Remember this, we be many and they be few. They need us more than we need them. Another world is not only possible, she is on is her way. way. On a quiet day, I can hear her waving. Mm. Okay, so call us to action, friend. What are we going to do? All right, I wouldn't be an organizer if I didn't tell you that we have a goal over at Side With Love today of 
500 people across the country taking making calls to their senators to get this done and pass voting rights legislation. Our partners who are part of these voting right coalitions, in particular, um, the defense, the Declaration for American Def Democracy, DFAD, um, is saying this voting rights bill is not dead in the water. There is still a window with cinema and with um, Joe Manchin. And I just want to respond to something in the chat, which is, it is not about changing their minds. It is about doing what Arundhati Roy says here, which is making it impossible for them to be on the wrong side. And that's where mass action comes in. This is not about like, oh, if we just tell you the right facts, you're going to get there. Mm -mm. This is about making it politically, logistically impossible to not do the right thing. So today um, we are going to share with you in the chat. It is also in your virtual order of service. We have a five minute ask for you. At Side with Love and You, You, The Vote, we have set up a, uh, a one-click link where you go, you put in your name, your uh, where you live, and it will automatically, you click one button, it will automatically on your cell phone connect you to your senator's offices. Um, and we will leave them a million messages. We will send them the things. Julika tried this yesterday. Um, I made her do it, and it was super easy. It took, what, like, five, six minutes total. Yeah, it, it actually took two minutes to get through to my first senator. And then the second one took six minutes because they put me on hold. But it was at Klobuchar's office. Okay. Yeah, at Klobuchar's office. Um, so what we're going to, we're going to put this chat in the chat. Um, I am going to ask you right now to everybody commit to taking this five minutes of action. Give us a yes, I will in the chat. Um, and after the service, we're gonna ask everybody uh, as you are praying with your fingertips and dialing these numbers, um, leaving your messages uh, to, to do this with us today. And I'm gonna pass it over, I think now to Arif. Julika, I just wanna thank you for this conversation. I wanna thank everybody in the chat for engaging with us and um, forward together, friends. Thank you, Ashley, and thank you for your ministry. Dear ones, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. wrote in his famous words in the letter from a Birmingham jail. I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow provincial outside agitator idea. Anyone who lives inside the United States can never be considered an outsider anywhere in this country. Beloveds, we are insiders with each other. The work is ours to do together in this inescapable network of mutuality. It is ours to do, it is ours to continue, it is ours to pick up, and it is ours to imagine into the future. As we do it together, may we find time to root deeply, to drink from the wells that sustain our spirits, to take our shifts for the revolution, and to love one another until the world we imagine comes into being. Blessings on all of you. Amen.
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text First Univ, that's F I R S T U N I V, to 73256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Thank you.